All right, verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. That's where we left off. And it says, therefore, put to death the members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of, or is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which yourselves also walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are also to put off these. Anger and wrath and malice and blasphemy and filthy language from your mouth. And don't lie to one another, since you have put off the old man and its deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge, according to the image of him who created him. And where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, Put on tender mercies, kindness and humility, meekness and long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ also forgave you, so you must also do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. You pray with me, please. Lord God, thank you, thank you, thank you for the privilege of being able to open your word for the privilege of being able to expect you to speak. You tell us that your word is active and alive, sharper than a double-edged sword, able to divide joints and marrow, soul and spirit. And even so, your, your, your word does too. It's able to discern even the intent of the thoughts of our heart. And so with that, Lord, I pray that you would today slice apart from us those things that don't belong and carve us more into your masterpiece. I'm so thankful for that. And Lord, with that, I thank you for the privilege of this time. We deem every second, Lord. I pray that it would go by well. Normally, we know that traditionally communion can be a little bit longer, but let it not seem long to any of us. But Lord, speak to each one of us individually as well as corporately. May your ministry happen here, Lord. May your work happen here. Lord, I pray for every person here that we would see you the way we need to see you today. That you would save if there be any need for that here. The lost, that you would bring back to repentance those who have wandered. That you would warn the unruly, strengthen the weak, encourage the discouraged. But Lord, just don't leave us alone. So Lord, I pray for that fresh immersion of your Holy Spirit that I would disappear and you would appear. And I pray, Lord, for that fresh enduing of your Holy Spirit. Fill me to overflowing that I douse this precious fellowship you bled and died for. That I douse them in your living word and your living water. And so, Lord, have your time now. We commit every second of this to you. Attach my lips now to your heart and speak profoundly, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say this morning as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Take that big, beautiful book in front of you and get into it. And let that word that you have in front of you be the thing from which you test all things to be true or counterfeit. Now, let's put a little bit of context to it. Um, first of all, we have an issue here. And that is that we're dealing with three lists. Now, now, understand, if you're new to the Bible, not everything in the Bible is just do this and don't do this, don't do this and do this. And by the way, note again, this is chapter 3. So this isn't just that God says, you know, hey, by the way, now that you say, boom, here's a list of things, check this off, tick this box, and you're done. 
But we have two chapters before we approach this. And notice again, right from the beginning of this chapter, there was a therefore. We have a general rule. If there's a therefore, what's the therefore? Therefore. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a bridge between usually a couple concepts and an action. That's usually the way it works in Scripture. Now, this guy, Paul, who, by the way, was a rampant anti-Christian. Uh, he thought that Christianity was a Jewish cult, and he was going to stamp this thing out. This thing was just some sick perversion of Judaism. And this guy was determined to purify Judaism by killing everything that involved Christianity. Until, of course, he encounters the risen, living Jesus Christ that he himself knew was killed on a cross. And everyone said he was, all these believers were saying that they've seen him alive. Paul was like, that's nonsense. People like that, don't just, they don't just rise from the dead. Uh, and then with that, Paul now encounters the living risen Jesus. And that kind of encounter, by the way, will change you. I mean, when you meet a dead person that's now alive, it will change you regardless. But when you meet someone who claimed to be the son of God, and then he meets you on the way when you're actually there. And he says, why are you persecuting me? You can see Paul going, well, I was trying to kill all these Christians. I was trying to have them arrested. And Jesus says, hey, look, it. let's just get to the core of this. Your problem isn't with these people. Your problem's with me, pal. That's a loose paraphrase, but search it for yourself. That's Acts chapter 9. Well, this guy then transforms. And by the way, he because he's a great arguer and he's a gifted debater, he's a really intelligent guy, he basically tries to use his intellect and his arguing debate skills to try to shut down now those that are going to oppose Christianity, which has to be a little bit frightening for the person that thought he was on your team. I mean, one moment ago, he was your heavy hitter, and then the next moment, he's basically your arch nemesis. You know? and, but the thing is, he's, he's trying to do in the flesh what only the Spirit of God can do. And so you'll find that he argues, uh, he's in Damascus, that's Syria. He argues with the people there, they try to kill him. He goes down to Jerusalem, he argues with the people there, they try to kill him. So at least he's consistent. Finally, the guys are like, you know what, this isn't working out so well. I mean, these people have no clue that this guy's going to wind up writing so much of the New Testament. All they know is, this guy's just an argumentative type of guy. He's a believer. But he's the kind of guy that, really, to be honest... He's the kind of guy that if a few of you were talking and the guy walks in the room, you guys might kind of run into another room and talk just because, you know, if he comes in, he's just going to want to drive home a point. And, and ultimately, that guy goes back to where he came from, which is basically the southern co coast of Turkey, just sort of that borders the area near Lebanon. And, and he basically learns how to do a trade. The guy was raised in the Ivy League schools for arguing and debate under Judaism. And now the guy is basically learning how to do a trade. He's a tent maker. So what does he have to learn how to do? Cut pieces of, of, uh, of cloth and then cut other pieces of cloth and stick them together right. Because you want to make sure that if that seam isn't right and it starts to rain, you're going to know it. It's interesting because Paul will even use that term to, a, to an assistant of his, the guy that sort of he hands the baton to, Timothy, when he says in 2 Timothy, Paul's last letter, look at, you need to be a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And the idea of rightly dividing was literally cutting things so they fit into a proper seam, making sure that the right pieces, it's like saying, put the right jigsaw puzzle piece in the right place. And that's what he's saying you need to be. But he uses a term from what he knew well, ultimately, up north in the area of Syria, uh, actually in the area of Lebanon today, in the Antioch Syria of the day, um, there's a whole new group of people that start to catch a fire for Jesus. I mean, they're lighting up, but they're not just Jewish believers, they're Gentile believers. And that's a pretty radical thing. Now, they've got all these brand new believers, everyone's real excited about it, but there's no one there that they think is a real gifted teacher, which would really bum me out if I was one of the guys there. 
And they're like, wow, we need a teacher. And I'd be like, uh, and they're like, no, we need a real teacher. And, and, and ultimately, there's a couple people from Jerusalem that pop up there to go, hey, you know what? I need to, we need to see if this thing's really valid. We, we hear about sparks flying. It would be really cool if this was a real deal. So they send up a guy named Barnabas. And another guy, and, and these guys are just sort of, and Peter has been checking out other things. And they have guys they trust in Jerusalem that are going to like, let's see if this thing really is the real deal. Barnabas loves it so much, he decides to stay. He's like, this is cool. So when he stays there, it's Barnabas now who looks and says, you know what? There was this guy. And boy, I tell you one thing he was, was smart. I mean, he liked to argue, but we'll see what he's like now. I'm going to go find him. And I'm going to bring him back here. I think this guy could be the pastor of the Antioch church. Now, understand this is before Google. This is before iPhones. This is before laptops. Now, for some of you, you're like, did that day ever exist? Some of us are old enough to remember when that was the case. When a portable computer meant you needed a dump truck. I mean, you know, I mean, it's like, we just made the thing smaller. It only takes up one room, you know? I mean, today it's like, oh, don't worry. It's on my watch, you know? Well, hear me out. This guy has to just go into a city and find this guy. I'm looking for a guy. Maybe you know him. He kind of likes to argue a lot. You know? And imagine what it would be like for Barnabas, by the way, when they say, oh, yeah, he's out there making tents. I mean, what would that be like today? I mean, that's just, I mean, okay. Oh, he's one of those guys wearing one of those super neon bright whatevers digging a ditch somewhere. So that, I mean, that's where he's at. You wouldn't expect that for the guy that was raised in the Ivy League schools, you know? I mean, you sort of like went to school with Prince Charles and now here he is, you know, he's, you know, I, I think he's down over there somewhere. And Barnabas is like, hey, bro. Now, loose paraphrase, <laughs> you know, probably Shalom Alechem. But um, just the same, he sort of shows up and he's like, you know what? There's this church and it's really actually not as far as Jerusalem. And I know the people in Jerusalem hate you, but here's a whole new place. You got another shot at it. Why don't you come down here? Up to this time, the guy's name is Shual, which just means sought after Saul. Um, not named Paul as we know him yet. Paul is a Greek name. Uh, Shual, by the way, is a Hebrew name. And so he comes down at Barnabas' request and he heads into Antioch. As he heads into Antioch, the guy starts to, to share and the church is prospering and people are being discipled. And there's an excitement about the word of God, which, by the way, most of the New Testament hasn't been written because Paul would wind up writing it. So, uh, you know, he's just like, well, hey, we got a gospel from Mark. Let's read what it says. Cool. You know, and they're reading it together. And hey, that and Paul, with all of his learning in the Old Testament, could go, hey, that reminds me of this text back. This is a fulfillment of prophecy from 1600 years ago. I mean, how cool would that be to have a guy that has that kind of knowledge? But sooner or later, these guys are in a prayer meeting. I mean, they're just praying, and all of a sudden, someone says somewhere, hey, you know what? I really believe the Holy Spirit says there's some guys we need to set apart here for a different work. And how weird would that be for all of a sudden, we look over, and it's Pastor Paul. Now, I understand that, because after 17 years on the Central Coast, that was what we experienced. All of a sudden, there's this day where the dust starts to clear and the Lord says, I've got a different word for you now. And you know what? I look at your faces and I think, hallelujah. I mean, I couldn't have pictured your faces back then. I would never have known you. But isn't God good? And I'm hoping you think so because I'm really thankful. Kind of hoping you are too. And this, this is kind of a mutuality here. Well, in all of that, the Holy Spirit has set apart Paul and Barnabas. These guys, I've got a whole new work for them. 
And it says then, then they fasted and prayed some more because they were already fasting and praying. But let's face it, when God calls your pastor away to somewhere, you would want to fast and pray and go, you're really sure about this, right? You know, this isn't the kind of thing where you want to wake up a couple weeks later and go, oops, actually, that was just pepperoni pizza and I had a weird dream. I mean, you know, and so, I mean, with that, Paul then, or Saul sets out. And as he sets out, Saul becomes Paul. Paul, by the way, polas means least. So we went from sought after to least. And as Paul then heads out, he goes and basically becomes our first rampant Christian missionary. And he takes it through Turkey. He takes the gospel through Cyprus. He takes the gospel all the way through to, uh, to Europe, to what we have today is the result of initially from Paul breaking down those doors. Well, God through Paul. And he's seen so many churches planted, but there are these churches that have, that have happened in the Lycus Valley, which is in the southeast area, about 100 miles east of Ephesus in Turkey, that Paul didn't plant. And as he learns about these, he's really excited. He's real excited because this is a church. And what an awesome thing when you hear about a church, you weren't the one planting. But Paul wants to make sure you've got the right Jesus. Because there is also the church of the easygoing Jesus that isn't really have any standards. There's the church of the liberal Jesus. There's the church of the make up the Jesus any way you want to. And then I would call there's the church of the salad bar Jesus, you know, where it's like, I'll have a little bit of this part of Jesus. We're going to leave this part alone. And well, you know, it's like, in, you know, kind of that like transformers. You just sort of stick some pieces together and it looks like something that came out of Sid's bed from Toy Story, you know. So consider this for a moment. Paul goes, and the whole letter is, do you have the right Jesus? He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created. Anything and everything that's been created has been created by him. Which means he can't be created because if everything's been created by him, he had to be there when the first thing was created. And by it says, it also says that for by him and for him, all things were created. And if you're a thing, with all due respect, because you're created, you were created for him. Paul goes, I want you to know that. And in the first chapter, he's like, let's make sure we have the real Jesus. God in the flesh, died on a cross, rose again, our payment, our Lord, our Savior. You got the right one. Now, with that, he gets into the second chapter and he says, now look, at you guys need to deal with the fact that there's going to be a lot of people that are going to come around and they're going to think they have authority and they're going to try to change the rules. They're going to say, well, that's not the real Jesus. That's been adulterated. That's been twisted. That's not really the case. Well, we're talking about people that, that were eyewitnesses that are being tortured because they saw the living risen Jesus. That's a really bad time to make up a different Jesus when they're torturing you to death. You know, I mean, at that point, sooner or later, you kind of break and go, <laughs> just kidding. I mean, wouldn't you? I mean, would you die for a lie? Especially if you knew it. And he says, look, there are going to be people that are going to try to turn your walk into philosophy. So it's all about smoking a pipe and sitting on a chair and going, well, I believe this. What do you think? Oh, I believe this too. <laughs> and in the end of it all, you've got a bunch of people who do nothing but talk all day and thinking they're changing the world. And he says, that's not going to work. He says, also, there are going to be others that are going to turn their entire religion into, into a set of rules. And all of a sudden, it's going to be about the dress code. Well, you can't come in here because did you just see, you know, where's your tie? Uh, here's a little side note, and I know we're recording, but just a little 
personally, I believe that ties are the direct result of the fall of man. That's just my attitude. Um, and they're okay to wear every once in a while, but I have an 18 inch neck. And so when you have to wear those things, it looks like a, it's a decorative noose is what it is. You know, it's like, okay, good. I'm looking good now, right? Um, but there is a cool thing because God says, I do have a dress code, but it's not that one. I don't want you to stumble people. I don't want you to be advertising you're empty or needy because truth be told, how could you advertise all of that and then say that Jesus is everything you need, but then you're spending your whole life trying to go, need me, like me, want me. And you're going, but I, but I, but Jesus is all I need. I mean, people can sniff through that. We can smell a phony. Now in our text here, you see, we are going to get to it. In our text here, what we have, if you think about it, is he builds on this idea. Look at you died with Christ. If you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, the old you died. But as the old you died, there's a new you now. And the new you needs to be a different person than the old you. Because the old you was rotten, decaying, and nasty. So if you realize there are three different things, three different areas in this text. We have, first of all, this idea of put to death, verse 5. Do you see that? That's the command here, is put to death. Now, there will be five things that he'll list out there. And then in 6 and 7, he'll tell us why. And then in verse 8, then, he actually tells us to put off. Notice the term, put off. And then, then he'll give us six things that are there. And then in verse 12, and then to verse 13, notice it says, and put on. And he'll give us eight things there. So this is what he says. Let this die, put this off, and then put this on. Are you following me? Now consider this. Look at the picture that I've given you here, just to kind of help with that. This is the picture of, and it's, by the way, it's really dangerous when you look at image search for things like extreme weight loss, because there's some of the grossest pictures I've ever seen in my life. Some that weren't so trying to be gross and some that were really clearly trying to be gross. Um, but this particular individual who now weighs about 200 pounds, weighed over 600 pounds before. Now I'm not exactly, I didn't read into it because I didn't really want to spend all my time on him, but those were a pair of his trousers. Now, I want you to consider the fact, though, that there's more than just those trousers that needs to carve off this boy when he loses that much weight. When that man started at 600 pounds, and this is something I'm, you should thank me I didn't give you pictures of, because when you lose that much weight, there's another part of you that actually doesn't get the information, and it's called your flesh. And this guy had over 20 pounds of unnecessary flesh. The guy really looked like a California raisin. Um, I mean, I mean, he just, he just had just just chunks of flesh just hanging on him. Now you, would, I mean, that's understandable because your body expanded, but then as you lost all that weight, this is just skin now that was used to that weight that isn't going to go back, and it's going to ultimately have to be surgically removed. You got to let that stuff die, and the way to let it die, hear me out, is you got to amputate it. It isn't like you look at it. I mean, you're just going to go flap, 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 flap. It's sooner or later, it's just going to go away if I keep doing my flap exercise. Flap, flap, flap. It's gross. The bottom line is it's going to have to go because your flesh will never reattenuate to a new body. Sooner or later, some of us, as we get older, we just know it just doesn't want to spring back like it used to. Matter of fact, we don't spring back in just about any way we used to. I mean, the things, I didn't look at how high something was when I jumped before. No, there's a part of me that goes, you know how long it's going to take to heal if you land wrong. <laughs> I never heard that voice before. Maybe it's because I've been married to my wife as long as I have because she talks like that. Or maybe it's the part of me that says, you know, 
But there's a part of me that also says, hey, you're going to get hurt sooner or later anyways. At least do something cool to earn it. So with that in mind, but here's the deal. Follow me on this because I won't develop these a lot because I already have them on here so that at least you can look at them in your own time because I really pray you would take to heart what's on here. The first thing he says is you got to let these things die. A matter of fact, it doesn't even say let. That will be next week's message because it'll say let this. When you let something happen, it means it already has a will or a drive and you're just giving it permission. This is an active verb, which means you're going to actually have to do something about this. And there are in these six things, these are going to be life controlling, listen, life controlling things that are all about you first, please yourself. Or in my sip, I'd say me first, please me. The second area, this changing of clothing, on the other hand, will be about me first. This is how it relates to you. Then the third area will be you first, and this is how it relates to you. But in between that, there will be, this is what it looks like to put Christ first, what it looks like for that. So there's a, there's a, there's a me aspect of it in this that needs to, be, to die. And notice what it says. Now, verse 5. Oh, hey, look, we're in the text. It says, therefore... No, therefore what? Because you are a new person now. Because you're not who you used to be. Hey, people still know you got the same name. You still, chances are, have the same face. You probably have the same voice. If you called, some people will just go, Hey, James, the moment you say hi, or whatever. <laughs> you know, sorry, bro. You know, or whatever the case is. Oh, you know, like, oh, it's Micah. Hey, it's Micah. Oh, it's Micah. You know, um, <laughs> You know, there's going to just going to be certain people. <laughs> Hi, this is Tristan. Okay, you don't have to say I know it the moment you call. But hear me out. You're still different. Now, follow me in on this. It tells us in Scripture, we are his workmanship. The word is poema. We get the word poem from it. Where is workmanship that God created for good works that we should walk in? He prepared them ahead of time. Now listen, God said, which means light beam. And light was. That was it. That's how much it took for light. He created the universe with a word. But he's been working on you for a while. You're his masterpiece. He could have just said, New James B. Maybe not with that car salesman tone, but just to say. <laughs> he could have, but he didn't. And I realized one of the reasons is because we know, some of us, what it's like to really try to make something artistic. And there's a delight in having an image in your head of the finished product. Though, if the, if the thing you were working on had a will, it would freak out as you start to carve. I've heard it said about Michelangelo as he was carving out a couple of the angels, uh, statues. People were like, how exactly do you do this? I mean, what, do you like kind of have the image in your head or whatever? He says, I really just believe there's an angel in there. My job's to free it from the rest of the rock. And I realized that God, when he looks at you, he already has the finished product of what he's planning. But as he starts to chisel off, there's a part of them I go, hey, 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 hey. I like that chunk. That was a good chunk. I like that chunk. And he goes, but you have no image. And all of a sudden, and then like as he starts to carve, you think you're a little mature because you're kind of this crude looking thing. You're like, oh, I know what I am. I'm a this. And he goes, No. This is the interim process. I'm kind of a cool-looking giraffe. He goes, no, there's an angel in this I'm carving. I mean, he's got a better image. And you're like, I'm kind of a Picasso. And he goes, no, better yet. And he starts to carve. And if you don't trust him, you're going to try to throw chunks back on you that he's carving off. 
Well, he gives us certain things here. He says, look, at, I'm going to carve these things off with your permission, but you're going to have to make a conscious choice on these. These are the things that your, your flesh now really is not going to play into it anymore. You can't let these things be part of you. And, there, and notice he says, put to death your members. You know what that is? It's body parts. That's what the term literally means. It's a limb or a part of the body. Now, that means something to me. How do I put to death a limb? I have to amputate it. That's my only option. It isn't like, I'm not going to feed it, because if I feed one part of me, that gets fed too. But the only way that you're going to actually let a limb die is to disconnect it from the rest of the body. And he goes, it's time to start disconnecting these things. Well, what are they? Notice what they are. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Now, for what it's worth, fornication, that should be a fairly easy one. But there is a huge debate right now over this issue in a lot of cases. And I'll tell you why, in my opinion. And again, I'm a pastor. I get to throw out an opinion here or there. But if I'll tell you, disagree if you want to. You can still be a Christian if you want to. But let me tell you at least what I believe the Lord's showing me. I believe one of the reasons why areas of sexual perversion have have been debated in the church is because, to be honest, even the simplest areas of things we call sanctified, to be honest, aren't even upheld in the church. We're so busy letting people get divorced and remarried and, and the whole thing's sort of like, a, you know, get a five-year contract on this. Uh, and, the, and I believe that if you just keep letting that happen, well, then how, where do you draw the line? And we become hypocrites when we start saying, well, the Bible says that's wrong. And they could say, well, the Bible says that's wrong too. I mean, either we got to believe it or not. All that, by the way, listen and hear me out. There's no sinful appetite. God has given you every appetite. The issue isn't the appetite. The issue is the menu. God has given for every appetite he's given you, he's given you a menu. And he says, this is the menu that's appropriate for this. You order off the menu, which is what the enemy would love for you to do. Well, then that's a different story. Then that becomes something from difference between love and lust, which by the way, the Bible makes a very clear difference between the two. Although knowing that it's near Valentine's Day, have you seen how many things try to make it almost look like the two words are synonymous? I'll walk by something and it's not even some like place where you would expect that. It's just like a Valentine. It's like a card store or a gift store, or a place that sells chocolates. And they'll be like, love, lust, and, you know, admiration. It's like all these words are the same to you. Anything that is any form of sexual pursuit that is outside of the confines of what God has made clear in Scripture, he calls sin. Now, hear me out. God wants a committed relationship between two people that the commitment should happen first which should produce proper time between you, from which should produce right intimacy, and that should be the product of it. It shouldn't be the other way around. The enemy says, well, if you can try to get intimate with someone, maybe then you can get a commitment out of them. That's worked out really well, isn't it? In America, I remember a woman saying, why buy the cow when you get the milk for free? You know, truth, truth be told, you know, truth be told, God would love to see, and this is a strange thing, now hear me out, God would love to see something that should scare the hell out of every one of us and that's commitment and we are living in a world where there's no commitment we're not commit we're not committed to anything anymore because we're consumers and consumers aren't committed we expect everything to be committed to us not us being committed to it i mean commitment is a price to pay and the idea of a consumer is give the least amount and get the most in return commitment's a very high price to pay but if all sexual relationships took place within the commitment of what God put in Scripture, something amazing would happen. By the way, we would find a cure for AIDS in one generation because there wouldn't be any. 
There would be no AIDS if that was the kind of commitment we saw within one generation. That's an amazing thought. Well, with that, uncleanness, by the way, which simply means impurity, and you can let the Holy Spirit take you wherever that is to make your walk impure, to pollute your walk. But it was the third word that really nailed me. And I'll tell you why. Passion. Passion, something I need to cut off? But I thought the Lord loved my passion. I thought the Lord was the one who gave me this passion. Now, believe it or not, I wasn't a spaz like this before I got saved. It really wasn't. I mean, actually, I was kind of an opposite of that. I was kind of a grumpy, nasty, leave me alone. I really didn't. As a matter of fact, I, I, it's an understatement to say I didn't like people. But I tell you what, I, I, I had my full throttle moments. But I'm supposed to let it cut, cut off passion? Pathos? The word from which we get pathetic? And then I realized something. There's a difference. I mean, God gave us emotions. Why did he give them to us? And I've watched enough people get excited about something. Hear me out, please. Emotion is a great ignition, but it is no engine. Because if it's an engine, it becomes an engine with no steering wheel. If you've seen someone driven by emotion, they're a dangerous person. Man, they could go full throttle into anything and everything. And I've watched that even recently around here. There'd be times where they're just people that get so driven by emotion. Reason steps out. Anything that is a clear guidance tool steps out. And you'll head into any area. You watch somebody that feels like they've been offended. You watch somebody who feels like they're entitled. And man, that's like, I'm entitled to get wasted and get beat up. I'm entitled to go and destroy my family. I'm entitled. And you go, what in the world? And you know what? The Bible actually makes that clear. And it's important to recognize that. Because the Bible actually talks about that. Notice on the other side of that handout, by the way, we put a chalk line. Put to death these things. Let them be right there in it. I wanted to lay out some starting facts on this, by the way, as we get into these texts. But, but I do want you to know, in regards to this path, this, this passion, it says in Proverbs 25, 28, whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. Do you know what a city broken down without walls looks like in the Middle East 2,000 years ago? It is a city open to attack in any direction. And a person that is led and driven and moved and ruled by their emotions is just like that. They're a person that could be attacked on any side. God says, I don't want that. that. Let that side cut off. I will give you a different passion than that passion. That passion has no steering, no steering, no guidance, and will not submit to my love. But I'd like to put that emotion into a place where I can govern real emotion. So I can start the car with it, but let me steer. Now hear me out. There's a few verses, and I just laid these out, and I... 2 Peter 3 9, where it says that the Lord, by the way, has no desire that anyone would perish, but all have to come to repentance, by the way. When we read any, do you know what the Greek word for any is? It means any. Do you know what the Greek word for all pontos means? All. And God wants everybody. In second or first Timothy 2 4, it tells us that he desires all men to be saved. Now let me ask you, how many is all? All is all. God desires every human being, even the person who right now is blasphemous and hating God. Yes, he wants him saved. Jesus died for everyone. It tells us in Ezekiel that he takes no delight in the death of the wicked. God is not a God that is full of vindication and anger or wrath. He has it. He'd rather not give it to you. That's your choice, not his now. 
But God is not just somebody that says, look, this has got to have an equilibrium to it. You do something, I'm going to nail you for it. Because if that were the case, none of us would be in here today. Rather, he's a God of mercy and of grace. Grace is a word nobody else seems to know in the world. And how could they? Because grace is that the wrath of us was poured upon his son. So that we wouldn't have to be eternally condemned and damned. And therefore, in Romans 3.23, it tells us, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, let me ask you, when he says all, how many in the world have sinned? How many have fallen short of the glory of God? All. The issue is, everyone has sinned. Everybody has a level playing field, but it says, but are justified freely by his grace. How many people could be justified freely by his grace? All. That's the whole point of it. In John 3.16, again, God so loved not just a handful of people, but the world. See, it isn't that God hates the sinner. What God hates is your sin. Do you know why? Because your sin kills you. See, if God didn't love you, he could care less. If I didn't care about you and you got some dreaded disease, I'd be like, wow, stinks to be you and I could move on with life. But if I cared, that disease would really hurt me to see you go through it. I mean, from the day that I was old enough to think my mother was dying of cancer, I watched her go into a person that was a skeleton at nine years old to help and carry her from room to room to the point where she was in such pain she couldn't move her legs and she had to move her feet just to scuttle across to get from one place. And she had a lot of fight in her. This was no woman that was easily taken down by anything. Matter of fact, the doctors actually said, we believe by this day you'll be dead. And on that day, she pulled all the tubes out of her nose and out of her mouth and all that and was out walking around because she was determined to prove to them that that's, that wasn't going to happen. But the cancer ultimately got the best of her. Now, the reason I say it is this. The reason I hated cancer was because I love my mother. That makes sense, doesn't it? The reason that I've hated alcoholism and drug abuse and porn addiction is because there are people I've loved who I've watched take them down. The reason God hates your sin is because he loves you and he hates to watch you kill yourself. It says the wages of sin is death. That's what you earn from it. Romans 6, 23. In Galatians 6, 8, it says, He who sows to the flesh will reap corruption. It says in Proverbs 22, 8, that he who sows iniquity will reap sorrow. So when he says, cut this stuff off, the reason he wants to cut off is because this stuff kills you. I mean, this is a cancerous cyst. It's a dead thing on you that's going to take you down. And he says, you know, you can have this amputated. Will you give me permission? I've got my hammer and my chisel in my hands and I'm ready to take this thing off. I need your permission. Will you let me put the death fornication in your life? Uncleanness. Governed by your emotions and passion. Evil desires, which just literally means longing for things that destroy you. And covetousness, which is idolatry. In other words, what he says is covetousness means just that you've got to have it. Avarice. And what he tells us is this is bowing down to something other than me. When you live in a world where you have to have the new thing, you'll trade in the old iPad for the new iPad because it'll have an 8G on it now or something. Or sooner or later, there'll be a thing where you tap it and it goes into a 3D kind of you know holograph effect and you just can probably touch in the air or something. You're like, I can't sleep until I have this. <laughs> I'm complete. I'm incomplete without my new 8G mega monster thing 3D experience. And God goes, wait a minute. I thought I was the one who made you complete. And he goes, look at this is idolatry. But notice what all these things have in common. These are things that's like me first. And this is how I treat me. 
I treat me by, I'm going to please me with fornication. I'm going to live in a world and be impure. Oh, I'm going to be governed by my emotions. Oh, I'm going to be driven by things that, oh, I know you say destroy me, but they feel good for a moment. Like itching something that tears through your skin. Or, oh, you know, in the end of it all, I got to have, it's for me, me, me. He goes, all that stuff is just cancer or gangrene. It's got to be cut off. And he says, because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. But you used to walk in them. Which tells us, by the way, do you know what it's like to walk in something? I mean, there's two aspects of it. There's the one, this is something I learned a couple days ago. One of my dear children, I won't say who because I don't want to embarrass Shantae. But she was walking. <laughs> she was standing someplace and somebody kind of looked and said, hey, look at what you're standing. And she was standing in somebody's vomit. Uh, now, you ever have those experiences where you just kind of walk and all of a sudden you're like, oh, this isn't good. This, there's nothing good about this. Because you kind of know whether you like it or not, even if it's like been dried for a year and a half, you just kind of feel like some of it's going to go with you, whether you're liking it or not. Now, there was places, because I'm not from from uh, California originally, but I remember walking in some places in, in, in L.A., which are like really super posh places, you know, and they're all like, oh, nobody talks without, you know, they can't move their teeth. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it really doesn't matter unless you pulled up in the new Ferrari or whatever. It's pretty much you're a second rate citizen. And when you walk in a place like that, and I'd come in there with a pair of torn jeans and a T-shirt. And be, they won't even say, can I help you? They're like, can I help you out the door? You know, <laughs> and, uh, and I'd walk in and again. This is this is not one of those most godly moments. And I walk in and I'd be like, oh, I think I just stepped in dog poop as I walked into the place. And man, you could watch them go, ah! And they all kind of flee to the other room. And then, then I'd walk out. Anyways, that was, uh, the whole point of it is you think you're taking it with you. But there's that aspect of walking in something. But there's another aspect about walking in something beyond just the puddle. Um, Landon can tell you about puddles and stepping in them in his flip-flops. You can ask him about that later. There's the aspect of walking in a place that you just kind of live. And you take with that certain things. You learn how to talk a little differently. Your, t your, your manner of address becomes different. The way you view people becomes different and your appetites become different. I mean, one of the things I absolutely love about London, I, I have a rampant taste for the exotic. I mean, those who know me know that. I mean, the spicier, the better, the weirder, the better. I mean, if I can, if, and because out on the mission field, you just have to develop a taste. It's like, oh, it's a bug. Could you, could you at least kill it first or something, you know? <laughs> I, I'd really like not to battle. I'd love to not battle the food as I'm eating it. But, but consider, consider the fact that... Um, that that's something you taste. All of a sudden, it's like, you know, the idea of getting a shawarma was something that I knew once a year I could get a shawarma when I went to Israel. I mean, now I can get a shawarma anytime I want to. And that's a really strange thought to me. I mean, I can get harari when I want to. I can get skug when I want to. Oh, I absolutely adore skug because it's just basically like a Middle Eastern hot sauce. I love that. Uh, the Moroccan sort of uh, soup that they make everywhere. Oh, I, you know, I, was saying, I, I mean, I, I shouldn't see. You'd think I'd be like the guy before in the thing from the way I talk about food. But my appetites have changed because I've been here. I mean, I can. I just know those things are available to me. When I was in Chicago, I talked a little bit differently than I do now, you know. I mean, you can tell when I've been hanging out with the American crew here for the day or when I've been hanging out out there talking to other people because my manner of address is very different, of course. You know, in Chicago, hey, stupid, what are you doing, huh? Hey, hold on, come on, let me, let me get you some real pizza. Someone, you drop it on your foot, you break something. That's real pizza. It's like Frisbee thing. You know, slap something on here, here you go. That doesn't a pizza to call something else, you know. It's a, it's a different world. You know, and then I've been moving from Chicago to California where everyone's like, dude, Bondard is comfortable as And I'm like staring at him blankly and go, 
Was that English? That was this. <laughs> Clearly not. I mean, I kind of got this. I don't even know what the big hair, your arm hurts, smell my deodorant. What? And you kind of learn. And after a while, you're like, oh, man, gnarl. It's just gnarl. Uh-huh. And you're like, what does that mean? It's all right, man. You're not, you don't live there. You don't need it. But you stand, I mean, but also in California, you know, I mean, you see somebody on the street, you just get out of country, like, hey, what's up? You know? That kind of thing. I mean, you hear, you go, what's up? They're like, ah! And they're like back into their, you know, magazine. This guy's obviously not from around here. He's probably <laughs> And you know it, right? Because we all know that locals don't talk to each other. They die alone. And you're like, hi, I'm not from around here. You know? I mean, we get different. But he says, look, you used to walk in these things. That's what you used to walk in. And if you used to walk in these things, that was your appetite. It governed your appetites. It governed the way you viewed people. And it governed, your, it governed the way you addressed people. I mean, when you lived in fornication, you, you met a girl and you sized her up. I mean, everybody sizes the other person up for whatever it is that's important to them. I mean, hear me out. Whatever's important to you will be proven by what you become an opportunist in. And every person's an opportunist in something. When all of a sudden you go, ooh, there's an opportunity to, and you want to do it. It'll show you where your value system really is. And you realize in awe of that, beloved, we're in a real, we're in a dangerous place. Because if you don't let these things get cut off, that's what you walked in. Covetousness, man. It's like, look at, ooh, I'm going to hang out with you. Because where did you get that? How do I get one of those? Or do the classic missionary thing. You know what? Where we come from, that could be so useful. We don't have one. But if we did, it could change heaven. Heaven would be changed for the better. You know. And, and you realize, but we all do it. Just some people know how to do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. For whatever the culture is. You know, where I, where I came from, it just was like, what's that? Give me that. <laughs> At least you knew where it was. You know, you knew where you stood with them. You don't need it. I can use that better than you. It's be- I can use that better. I can use it. Give it to me. I'm like, you didn't buy it. You didn't earn it. I don't care. I can earn it now. I can earn it by playing it better. I can do better. I'm like, no, you can't. And, and all of that, it's like you can see that's the way you're so driven by something inside. I better move if we're going to actually get to more text. Hear me out, though. Are you willing to let God amputate today? I mean, imagine the worship song that could come out of this. God amputate me <laughs> off my body parts. I mean, imagine that. Someone would come in here and go, oh, what kind of church is this? <laughs> I remember there was a church that had a song and it said, God kill me in it. And I totally understand what the worship leader was going for. And he kind of had a week of just really living in the flesh. And he was just like, God kill me. <laughs> But I just thought, man, there's an unbeliever in this place, man. They're like, I can just see him. It's like, I hope it's not a communion Sunday because they're like, that's probably Kool-Aid. <laughs> I'm not going to wear the Nikes and drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> okay, look it. But once you get rid of all that nasty, ugly extra pounds, I mean, if I was a homeless guy, that's what my sign would say. Get rid of some ugly pounds right now. Put it in my cup. Uh, but once you do, you realize the clothes, they, they don't fit you like they used to. There's a dress code. And those clothes, hey, beloved, um, they don't look good on you anymore. To be honest, they never look good on you. 
But now that you're a new person and those parts get carved off, that's a lot of excess weight. And the stuff that you used to do, it just doesn't fit you anymore. And hear me out. Here's the fun of this. Clothes mean so much more than just something that keeps you from being naked. Clothes are your identity and they're your prosperity. And in the Middle East, even more so. I challenge you to look through the Tanakh, the Old Testament, and see how many times somebody pays another person in clothing. Oh, we'll take 20 changes of clothing or 10 changes of clothing. If you remember, even when the guy goes to Elisha and he asks the Nechaman, the Syrian, who asked to be healed, and he comes with all these changes of clothing and all these other things. I remember that. Remember, Achan, we would say Achan, from the book of Joshua, who, by the way, lived up to his name. He really was Achan because they went up stoning him. But he went up stealing a Babylonian garment. Okay, can I wait a minute here? I mean, you guys have been slaves for over for 400 years. You guys are heading into the promised land. You head into the promised land. Everybody's got the same outfit on. And you're going to steal an Armani suit? Where in the world are you going to wear that? Oh, well, this old thing had it around in the brick-making factory. Come and be honest. But it isn't that he was going to wear it. Chances are it's a, he probably would trade with it. And the reason I say that is what you're going to put off is going to be a lot of your identity and a lot of what you think is your value system. And what you put on then will be the, will it be the same. Okay, walk with me in this. And I, 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 there's a part of me that says, maybe we should cut it here, but I'm having too much fun. Please walk with me in this. It says, because, I mean, let's get the surgery done now. I mean, you, you already carved off. I can't leave you naked there. So in verse 8, it says, so now yourselves put off these things. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, and filthy language from your mouth. And don't lie to one another. I mean, the words are pretty simple. Anger, wrath. I mean, the idea of anger, orge, just means fierceness is the word for wrath. Um, the word there's thumas. And that's going to come important in a moment. The word malice, by the way, kakos, which just means badness, like I'm bad. You know, there's certain words. It's like, oh, that's so wicked. Hmm. And I don't know if that should play in the Christian world because that's what we were before that. We, we actually, that was a good thing before. Oh, I'm, I'm bad. I'm bad. You know it. You know, because, you know, I'm bad. There's something about a guy singing that high and saying he's bad that just doesn't work where I come from. But, um, but I know in here, that's a really dangerous thing to talk about. St. Michael. But anyway, so, um, but God says, look it, don't let that be where, don't let that be your clothing. Don't let that be the thing that people, because that's what they're going to, I can tell you a little bit about you from away, and you go like, how dare you judge me? Because, you know, I'm just a normal person. My hair's all, whoa, like this, I'm pierced everywhere. I'm just a normal person. I'm just, you know, hey, look, you might be, but the bottom line is you're advertising something about you from the moment you, whatever you wear. I mean, tonight there's the Super Bowl. Um, we're gonna we're looking at scraping up a handful of people. That's definitely gonna be a fun thing. We're staying up late. We're gonna eat all kinds of food that's probably really dangerous to be around us once we're done with it. <laughs> but it's like Pittsburgh, and uh, I think it's Pittsburgh Steelers and Green Bay, um, you know, Packers. But if you came in here like dressed with a big piece of cheese on your head, for some of you, like what in the world? That's actually what they do. They call themselves the Cheeseheads in Green Bay, and and just the whole kind of green gold, and you're just like whoa. I'm going to assume you're going to root for Green Bay. And you can say, oh, you're just judging me. You know, I mean, oh, come on. You know, I'm, I'm actually secretly inside. I'm really a Pittsburgh fan. I'm like, everything about you says cheesehead. I would think that means something. And when we put off these things, there's going to be another side of that. Anger, wrath, malice. That's how I treat you now. I mean, if all that extra weight's on me, this is how I'm going to treat you. I'm going to treat you fiercely, not kindly. 
going to treat you in a way where I'm just going to shove you around and make you do whatever I want. I mean, to the point where I'll do, I'll even deceive you. And that's what's really important about a couple of these words. I mean, blasphemy, by the way, the fantastic thing about blasphemy just means making ordinary the extraordinary. I think really, to be honest, there's one thing about blasphemy and just saying something really evil about God. It's another thing just about making him ordinary. I don't really think the OMG thing is appropriate for Christians. That's certainly my conviction on it. And the bottom line is, unless there's some glory attached to that statement, because we really shouldn't make ordinary the extraordinary. Now, when I think when people say that out there, I, I'd like to ask them, well, who, who is he? Because a lot of times when they say, oh my God, it's really not our God. And I'm like, hey, let's, can we compare for a moment? Ryan loves you, adores you, sent his son to die on the cross for you, can't stop thinking about you, has been, he stuck me as a lunatic in your way. He really, really wants you. Now, what do you, what, what's your God got? You know? Filthy language. You know? Even that's like, you know what? And I know what it's like to make people laugh, and I like to make people laugh. But man, if I do it at someone's expense, what good is that? But lying, for what it's worth, pseudomai. Pseudo, like pseudo, means just deceiving. There's a difference between outright telling a lie and just deceiving someone. And you know that. Look at The Bible says it's not right to lie to anyone. No, there are other groups and other people that will say, well, you can maybe lie to that group or you can lie to that group. But the Bible says you don't lie to anyone. You don't deceive anyone. Well, what if someone's in your house and you're protecting them and a guy comes to the door and says, hey, 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 hey. Do you got that person in there? Do you lie to protect them? I say, no, I'm going to trust the Lord. I've been on panels with other guys, with other pastors, and they go, well, what happens when that situation happens? I'm like, funny, it just happened a week ago. A guy came to the door and he was an angry guy, and he's like, hey, do you got, you know, blah, blah, blah in the house? And I'm like, yes, we do. But it's my job to protect her, and you're not coming in. Now, granted, maybe I'm just a little crazier than the average guy and all that. And he says, well, why don't you come up and walk with me for a little bit, and we'll go talk. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, this is going to turn out exciting. But look at no deception, because the bottom line is what I've learned is all it takes is one thing to break someone's trust in you, but it takes forever to get it back. And when you just kind of go, hey, you know what? It's a little this, or I need to do this, and I only got this, or you know, whatever, but you really don't only got that. Phrase it in a way that's real then. When someone says, you know, you're haggling for something and you know you've got 40 pounds in your pocket, but you're not going to spend more than five on that thing. And the guy says, it's 40 pounds. And you're like, and you could say, well, I only got five. You know, I'll say, look it, I only got five to spend on that thing. It doesn't matter how much I've got in my pocket. I'm not giving you more than five. And I'm just going to let you know. Well, six. I'm like, what part of five did you miss? <laughs> we do use the same counting system, don't we? You got like a slide rule or something over there? Okay, 650. We're missing it. Five. I'm walking away. Five. That's all you got. This is it. This is it. I mean, that's, you know, but look at, because the moment that someone kind of looks at you straight in the face and you go, really? And they look at you and they say, yeah. And you know, they're not telling you the truth. Something switches in you, doesn't it? And you're like, well, you're now in a new category. You're in a category where I'm really just not going to take what you say with the same kind of oomph that you used to. We got to be careful in that. And he says, look at, that's the stuff that used to be your identity. But after all, you know why we lie? We lie to get what we want. But that's not what, it's not our job anymore. Okay, wrap this around. But now it says, no, there's a new guy. This new guy that's lean and mean or a new gal that's lean and mean that isn't flabby with all this flesh hanging off. There's three things you need to know about him. Verse 10, you've put on the new man, 
is renewed in knowledge according to, him, according to the image of him who created him. You're a new person now. Now there's neither Greek nor Jew. That's your education. Circumcised or uncircumcised. That's your religious background. Barbarian. By the way, do you know why they have the term barbarian? You know where they came from? See, the Greeks, there was a time when they conquered all the world. And for the first time since the Tower of Babel, the known conquered world all spoke the same language. Can you have thought about the fact that that was when God waited to, say, to send Jesus so that you could get the gospel out to everyone in the same language? Isn't that an amazing thought? Oh, by the way, he also, because the Babylonians had conquered prior to that, had given a, a, a global mindset for the first time. And be, after, the, after the Babylonians were the Greeks, um, and then after the Greeks were the Romans, and the Romans paved the known world. So what you had was we had a global mindset, everyone spoke the same language, and you had roads paved by pagans, thank you very much, Roman Empire, so we could get the gospel out to everybody in one language. And isn't that amazing? We haven't had it since. But for the Greeks, there were people they tried to teach Greek that wouldn't, and it really sounded like what they said to each other was, bar, 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 bar. So they called them barbarians. I kid you not. That's where they got the term from. Scythians is even <laughs> Scythians is even more. And so they just kind of considered them untamed brute beasts was kind of the idea. A Scythian, interestingly enough, was originally a nomadic horse riding tribe of people, Bedouins, from Iran. They were fair skinned. And they were basically people who traveled from one place to another. They found they were, in, by the way, infinitely gifted when it comes to gold work and they then they ultimately wound up settling in the areas of ukraine and southern russia they found mounds of scythian reliefs on gold in these burial mounds of people claiming of them of the being the scythians and by the way there are people like heroditus who's a historian who speaks of these people uh, being that and i just think it's a fascinating thing well why why would he even put these people in among all of the people he doesn't say like there's neither asian or you know or black or white or whatever well, those are terms he might use today but the barbarians and the Scythians in those days were just people that nobody really understood because they kind of came and went. You know, I mean, you could maybe put in here gypsy. That kind of paints the image. And again, I'm not saying those people were like that. That's just the way they were viewed because nomads were people that kind of come into your town and leave, like carnies that work at a carnival. You just kind of don't, you can't put a finger on them. And what he says is, look it, I don't care where you came from. It doesn't really matter. In this room, it isn't going to be about whether you're black or white or whether you're old or young or whether you're highly educated or not or your social strata, I'll say slave or free, whether you're a business owner or whether you're somebody that's just trying to figure out how to make a couple bucks. You're walking around slipping things into slots. The bottom line is here, it's all about Jesus or it's not. And the cool part is when Jesus is the center of it all, and hasn't that been the gist of this letter? It's all about Jesus. When it is, it really doesn't matter whether you're a movie star or a street sweeper, and not that either one of those is greater than another. The bottom line is Jesus is everything. And you come in a room like this, praise God. I mean, there's a guy that comes in here and he's a football star. The great thing is we don't even, well, our family, we don't even have a TV to watch it. You know, they could walk in here and just be like, oh, you know, and I'd be like, dude, that's either Jesus or not here. No, it says then, therefore, last thing. As the elect of God, it says, neither but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. These are the three things that you are now. This is the new you, the lean, mean you, not mean like nasty. You're chosen by God. God puts his finger and says, I want you. Does that mean he chose, didn't choose someone else? Why would you care whether God chose someone else or not? The point is, is that God would pick you. And maybe for some of you, some of us, this may be the first time that anyone's ever actually said, I want you. 
But the fact that he died for you on the cross, that he's redeemed you by his blood, what's clear is he wants you. You're important to him. So the first thing is I'm important. Second is holy, which means I'm set apart for him, sacred. And third, that I'm loved. Because this is what the new you looks like. If you can get that through your skin, that I wanted, set apart, and loved, I won't have to be driven by those other internal things that I used to that now need to be carved off, the fornication, uncleanness, passion, and so forth. Because those were the things, because I didn't feel wanted, important, or loved. But now you are those things. That's why you can let that other stuff get carved off, because now you're wanted, important, and loved. Set apart, and therefore, let's put on the new clothing. I'd like to introduce you to your new wardrobe, and we'll pray. Tender mercies. It's interesting because the word splagnon, isn't that just sound beautiful? Roll off your tongue, splagnon. <laughs> Splag is the word for tender. Compassion is another word that's used. Splagnon means, well, if, if any of you have the old King Jimmy with you, the word will say bowels of mercy or bowels of compassion. See, splagnon is your inside, your spleen, your because wherever it is you think that the idea of wherever your emotions shoot from. Back in the, those days, they, they actually said that the, the kind of the general consensus was that your emotions sort of came from your bowels or your insides, your deep insides. I mean, even in the Wild West, they would use the term that they would say your liver was where all your courage came from. Because if your liver didn't have any blood in it, which means you wouldn't have any courage, it would turn white. And if you ever heard someone say, you lily livered, what that means is you don't have any courage. But you guys know what this is like, right? Because you look at a sign and you see a kid and he's obviously in need and there's a part of your insides that just hurts. And you know, sometimes it's really wicked what people do to actually try to manipulate that. You walk by the one, you see the big one of the kid in the wheelchair and say, go ahead, walk away from this ad. Little Jimmy would like to. And you're like, oh, I can't believe that. There's a part, and you think, but that's how what it's gone to because they're like, you've hardened, you toughen yourself up so you don't let it hurt you anymore. But he says, look at what you're going to put on now is a person that has a soft heart. And that's the whole idea of this. As I think that what people need to know is that you're not so hardened by the world, by your culture, by London, by whatever, that you don't care about people anymore. One of the first things they need to know that you care. That should be your new identity. That should be your new dress. Second thing is kindness. The word, by the way, interesting enough, literally means to be useful, to be open, to be used. Wait a minute, people are going to use me? Yeah, they will. And they'll say, well, can you actually walk another mile with me? And you go, oh, you had to see mile. Oh, that's exactly what scripture says. Thanks a lot. Couldn't have said kilometer. Maybe I could have pulled out of that one. Meekness. A humility, by the way, the word humility in its simple sense, it doesn't mean you think really low of yourself. It just means you don't think of yourself. You stop putting yourself first. And you ever see people and all they want to do is bag on themselves in front of you because what they're really hoping is that you'll actually say nice things to them? That's not humble. That's fishing. Meekness is the word that's used, by the way, of a horse that's been broken. That doesn't mean they lack their strength. It just means they're steerable now. Long-suffering, macrothemia, which basically means that you have a long wick. But it's going to take a long time. Now, I didn't used to have a long wick. And I tell you what, man, when that wick got lit, I didn't even want to be in the room with me. But I, I mean, and by the way, I can tell you that the Lord has infinitely lengthened my wick because he's given me children. 
and children don't care. You know, if you're grumpy and nasty and you haven't slept in a while and you're, you know, you're whatever, and they'll just come in, da, ba, and they'll just kind of, Ruthie will just kind of jump and just kind of jump on me like a starfish on my head or something. And boy, I tell you, I remember, I remember the back when, when a friend would just kind of surprise me from back and go, boo, and I threw him over my shoulder into a wall. I'm like, oh man, I'm sorry. You just, and I'm like, okay, I'll never do that again. And he goes, look at, in other words, what people need to see, the new you from a distance, because your clothing will show you from a distance, won't you? It's like, you know what? That's somebody that would care. That's somebody that would go an extra mile with me, would sit with me. I mean, that's somebody actually who isn't going to try to manipulate me, but to be honest, would be willing to be used by me because somehow in it, I want to walk out of this thing thinking I'm important. And see, the reason I can show you you're important is because I've already resolved those things that were back in verse 11 or verse 12. Remember, the whole idea is that I'm important now and set apart for God and loved. I've got it all in Him, so I can show you that. But with that, bearing with one another, that word, by the way, literally means to allow someone to lean on you. Forgiving one another, and that word literally means to show grace to another person. That's just not something they deserve. See, Christianity is about grace. It's not about earning if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, now you read these words and you cannot, but do you realize what they mean? By the way, do you have a complaint against any brother or sister? Do you have a complaint against anyone? You're like, well, that person is, that doesn't mean your complaint is, it doesn't say, if anyone has a complaint against one another, unless it's legitimate. <laughs> has the enemy ever tricked you into saying, well, you might as well not forgive them because that's legitimate. That's legit. Jesus, I don't care. I mean, imagine Jesus going, do you want to play the grudge game? Do you ever think, I have a right to be have a grudge against you? So you go have a grudge against somebody else, and then let's list out all the reasons why I should have a problem with you. That's, the, that's not a game you want to play. You'll never win it, nor will I. He says, for the amount that I've forgiven of you, you will never, ever have to forgive anyone the amount that I've forgiven you. So, but above all, Here's what makes your ensemble complete. Love. Ties it all together. Now listen, love, agape, that word in the Greek, simply means you before me. And if, if what is important is you before me, I will find myself being kind, being meek, being long-suffering and humble, and offering tender mercies, because it won't be about me, it'll be about you. Now, we're going to go to prayer. I recognize we've gone tremendously long today, probably twice as long as we might have. But you know what? I'm having fun. But listen, we're about to go to the table of the Lord. Now, whether you're brand new in Jesus or whether you've walked with Jesus and you feel like you met Moses way back when. <laughs> I remember the flood! Ha! Which wouldn't be so bad because... Well, anyways. Listen. We're going to testify of Jesus' death and resurrection. But I want to ask, as I go to the Lord, and I'm just going to pray for me. You're welcome to amen it. But I'm going to ask for God to amputate. I'm going to ask for God to remove a whole wardrobe and give me a whole brand new one. And if there are parts that I'm starting to wear in the right way, they fit me a little better now, may he add more to it. You ever find something and it fits so good you go back to the store to buy two more of it? I mean, once we found out that here, a washing machine is basically the size of, I don't know, your hand. 
You know, it's like, oh, I think I can wash three socks in this one. You know, you're like, I think I might have to get a couple more pairs of jeans. Just to... My wife's like, oh, there he goes. Look at it. Let's let God give us a big wardrobe, but this is what it's going to look like. 